0: Do you love racing? Then you've come to the right place. We discuss current topics in most asphalt series, as well as deep dives into the history of racing, race cars, and the drivers. I'm NASCAR driver Derek Cope. I share some of my personal stories, as well as highlighting those people that shaped my career and others.
1: I'm Alicia Cope, and we also take on controversial and engaging topics on many subjects, including NASCAR, as well as tips and tricks that have worked for us in building teams from scratch, keeping relationships, and finding new roads.
0: Hopefully our experiences will inspire you to reach your own goals. Let's get started. Welcome back to Race Theory. We are going to discuss some exciting things uh, in this episode. It's episode 49, and we're calling it What Happened to American Stock Car Racing? Obviously, things have changed dramatically. Yes, they have. In a very short period of time. And I think we find that, and we see that, as well as hear it, because it seems like every time we go in someplace, and either I'm recognized, or we somebody's talking about racing. The bottom line is, I don't even really watch it that much anymore. Right? Not like the old days.
1: Right. And if they were a NASCAR fan, if they of were old, a NASCAR yeah. fan,
0: exactly right. Young and old, and but mostly the elder, the elder people. Maybe well, not. We're even, not even talking we're elders. We're not, not talking elders. We're talking like fifties ish. Right. right? they aren't really paying attention to it in the same manner in which we have with the passion and the excitement of the sport back in the nineties. And there's not, it's not happening. The drivers that they can resonate with are gone and have retired. And realistically, you know, the big names of the sport now, you know, aren't really that big a name, you know? I mean, they're doing some great things, you know, but you know, again, It just doesn't seem like there's that much attention drawn to it. I I think I see this, too, when, you know, you watch all these guys at the racetrack, which we were there for, you know, like, you know, the last seven years or whatever, you know, when we quit, you know. But bottom line is these guys would complain about, you know, 10 people chasing after for an autograph. Instead, you know, back when we were driving, you know, you watch all these guys and you're trying to get through a sea of people to get to anywhere you could get to. And you didn't have a bus to go to back then. We did, you know, sometime in the mid '90s or whatever. But before that, you had no place to go, and there's people—I mean, droves of people—because they were all in the garage area, and it was it was an exciting and dynamic aspect. Yes,
1: I I see um, pictures of throngs of fans following a driver, and we're not talking ten; we're talking fifty, you know, people following drivers just clamoring for an autograph. I remember when we went to Indy uh, the first time. When we went back as an Xfinity team, and people lined the fences and literally were poking um, cards and pieces of paper, scraps of programs through the chain link fence for you to to autograph them. And I asked you then, was this what it was like, you know, back in the late eighties, early nineties? And you said, yes, this would have been a glimpse as to what it was like.
0: Well, you can attest to that when you remember Fuzzy was talking about. First time that he met in me was at Michigan and it was through the fence signing something. And, you know, that's how it was back then. You would because you were you weren't going to a bus. You were staying at your hall or your transport. So all those people would line up at the fence behind all the transporters. And they would be, you know, ten deep. And you would go back there and you would sign stuff for those people, right? During some time, you know, that you had after practice or whatever. And that didn't have access to you. And that's how they got to get a glimpse they got an opportunity to leave with a story because you spent time talking to them and you know so those those things all all changed and when i think when nascar closed the the actual paddock then
1: things, instituted it, the hot pass
0: correct things right. changed and it just it just changed the whole dynamic but so this and then of course we went through that lull really you know where there was not a lot of uh attendance and people weren't really paying that much attention to it these guys you know were you know i don't know complaining about 10 people want an autograph so it's it's, again it's just uh you know the whole thing has really changed you know and that's from the perception you know of racing and what the sport was doing and of course the world was was changing and i think that's the one thing you know what happens is like you know all of a sudden say how do you fix this well then you start You start throwing things at it, you know. You start trying different things and concepts, trying to revive and trying to resuscitate this thing. And in all reality, it's just the world's changing so quickly. There's so many other ways to view it and so many other ways to access it. And it's just and people are getting busier, you know, trying to make a living. And it's like becomes less of a factor to spend four hours or uh, all day, you know, trying to watch this event. So you know, again, with that, you know, I think kind of leads you towards a segue that you know what has changed well and we talked about it the world's just changed right but at the same time like anybody that owns you know a sports franchise or you have a sporting event or you have something a promoter of an event racetrack you know facility you're trying to draw people that's the whole dynamic how do i do that most effective most cost effective well the situation still happens when you own a series like NASCAR. You know it always starts with the higher ups, and everything filters down. And any business or whatever—that's what happens, right? So the guy at the top of the heap, he makes the decisions on what he feels needs to happen. And when we started this deal, we had Bill France Sr., and then it went down to Bill France Jr. And when those guys are gone, you are left with another person. And this happens to be Jim France. It comes down to when you have that kind of money and that kind of you know, strength uh, over, you know, a I mean, they're basically a dictatorship of NASCAR.
1: Yes, most definitely.
0: And so when you have that ability to make conscious decisions based on what you feel or you want. Then things change. And I think that's where we're at. There was really nobody else there. Lisa maybe wasn't, you know, I mean she's behind the scenes, very dynamic, very, I think, very proficient at what she does, but the hard parts are the hard decisions about the cars themselves, they've had to delegate that out to other people along the way. And I think Jim finally, you know, he 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 basically owns IMSA. He started IMSA. And, you know, the road racing arm of NASCAR. So If you take a look at where things have gone, they have migrated towards coming to be more in line with IMSA racing.
1: Yes, and in a very short period of time, it's almost mind-blowing how many road courses there are now and, and continue to grow every year.
0: Well, if you think about what Jim has done with IMSA, and it's always about trying to get the OEMs involved the manufacturers the car manufacturers they have been able to do that with this IMSA program this aligning with Europe and this global type of road racing platform they have accomplished it with this LMDH and the hypercar LMDH, uh, you know hypercar type of scenario where all the manufacturers have now gotten on board they have some identity uh, it's a base, basically a car that they get to go out and physically Make themselves and design themselves around some some guidelines and a template, but you know more like an F one, you know, where you are basically building your own car, right? And so they've actually just gotten behind it, and it's been well received. And road racing is really in the in the last five years, I feel like has really you know has made a very you know rise, big rise uh, in popularity, and it's where the youth of America could afford to start racing and now have been able to get to a point now where they can see light at the end of the tunnel as like I did with the cup series, with the divisions that I was driving, they can see that there's an opportunity for them to make a living driving a race car. So well, and you, it wasn't
1: that way before. I mean, even in the series that we're in now, the, the trans am, that's a road course series in years past the path to NASCAR would not have been clear. That wouldn't have been a chosen path. That would have been more if they wanted to go Indy racing or they were, you know, aspired to be Formula One or those type of things. Now it is much more normal for you to choose a NASCAR path via a road course training, which is a complete departure from what, you know, stock car racing was.
0: That's true. And back then, you know, there was a lot of great racing going on, you know, in Trans Am. I mean, you had Tommy Kendall, you had Boris said, you had... Um, I, I can't there's so many guys that ran that series right and Roush was very heavily involved in it the manufacturers were South um, Southland I remember Southland Corporation when I was racing uh, in, in, with the Cup Series at Pure Later they were doing a lot of things and beyond you know in, uh, in Trans Am series and sponsoring and the Trans Am series was you know something that a lot of these drivers kind of used right to get to a possibility of running a different type of road racing car so there was all kinds of avenues there was the actual gtp cars back then that ford was involved with Zach speed i was you know prevy when i was with ford motor company to see some of that when ray hall was driving those cars and uh, it was an interesting time and i loved the cars uh but it was just i was so fixated on cup racing but you could you know you there was a lot of great race car drivers well then you went through this period of time in nascar when road courses kind of came back to the, on the scene. And I remember, you know, right there, I mean, I'd already been to Bondurant's driving school in the early days, like 1981 or so. I went to Bondurant driving school, got to know Bob and, you know, took that course because there was road courses on the Winston West schedule. And I knew that that's what ultimately I would have to go to. And they, I needed to be able to become proficient at that. So I did that. And back then you had transmissions that didn't have, they weren't crash boxes like today they were actually, they had synchros in them. So like the Ford top loader, you know, if you didn't mesh and mash the RPM, you would break a synchro and then the thing would lose a gear. So you had to be really good at heel and toe downshifting. So there was an art to being a proficient road racer back then.
1: Yeah. One, and these one mischief. Days, oh, well, and it does that. It It's that way today as well. Not as much as it would have been then. You can only imagine just one little mistake and you're completely out of the race
0: yeah back then you had to use the clutch you had to heel and toe downshift. You had, to, you had to put your foot your toe on the brake roll your heel over and match the rpm on the throttle and then raise the the rpm well now you left foot brake you use your right foot on the throttle and you just rev the motor up as you go in the corner as you shift into an h pattern shifter into a gear and so it's a lot easier with a kind of like an old drag racing crash box you would just automatically with straight cut gears it just automatically takes the uh Shifter out of your hand and drives it right into the uh, the next gear, so it's a lot easier, a lot more proficient. But if you you know were back in those days, if you didn't have the capabilities and the technique uh, that you could do heel and toe downshifting, it was very difficult. And in the in that period of time, you had the guys like Ron Fellows, and Boris Said, and a lot of these you know very proficient road racers, you know that were coming out of Trans Am, they were coming into the NASCAR Cup Series and making hay, and they were running up front, but they were also being used and paid to teach these other drivers how to race. And it kind of went through its period and kind of phased out. And the guys in Cup became really pretty good road racers, right? Because there's more of the races, there's more testing. They were really working hard at it and they were refining the actual race cars. So it just, that's how it progressed. But getting back to the fact that now Jim France has basically, change the world of stock car racing or what you would call stock car racing it is no longer
1: it is no longer stock cars
0: yeah these cars now are basically i mean they're road racing imsa style race cars yeah. because they have now have you know a sequential gearbox you know we don't have the standard you know the nine inch forward we're in anymore you know it's got independent front and rear suspension you know we got four-way adjustable shocks we've got You know, a lot of things in the car, we got a rack and pinion steering, which we've never had, you know, before in stock car racing, you've always worked off of the principle of what an automobile on the street would have. You had a steering box, you had a drag link, you had tie rods and you had migration because the car was moving. So you would have migration in the car as a car goes over the bumps and you have changes in the upper and lower A-frames. And then you would have the migration of the bump, bump steer so the cars would you know, keep the tires pointed in the direction you wanted them. So there was a lot to the geometry of the car in that regard. Now, the cars don't move. They're much like an Indy car. They don't move very much. They're trying to keep the car very low to the ground and keep a stable platform so there is no roll moment change in the front because the drivers are so in, t- in tune to the cars. If there's any kind of a movement in the front, or a roll moment change and the car adapts and pitches and rolls, the drivers react with a hand movement. So they have a hand input, and that changes the alteration of the car. Mm-hmm. And the tire being a radial and a low-profile tire, the car is very picky, and it, it re- responds to every little movement the driver makes. So that's where we're at. Now Jim has you know, really guided this thing towards this next-gen car. And the next gen car now is a actual just road racing car that's trying to be put into an the oval. oval track right vein.
1: <laughs> it's it's completely flipped it from being an oval car sport and then trying to format your car to fit a road course. Now it is a road course car and we'll try to make that road course car fit an oval.
0: Yeah. The, the, actually, I mean the, the cars most proficient on the road courses more so than the ovals now. Yes, It's almost like, that. like you say, we have flipped. We used to take oval cars and go, you know, make, uh, you know, make them turn, you know, right and left with caster changes and, and, and camber changes, right? Then you started working on having your own road course car. That was, you know, everything you could do, the biggest brakes,
1: everything you could do to create downforce, you know, bigger areas in the, well, upfront. and I remember we would just keep our road course car for the road courses. I mean, it would just sit there most of the year. And those four or five road courses, you'd bring it out and hopefully you wouldn't wreck it because you just had one that you had all that special stuff in. Now it's completely different.
0: Yeah. I mean, so it's, that's what we did back then because, you know, that you could see, I mean, it was some of those places that you had to, you couldn't compete if you didn't have an actual road course car that was specifically done for that, you know, where then all the pedals were in the right locations, you know, maybe the shifter's a little bit higher, closer to the steering wheel, all the little things that you could stack pennies on to like make the car and the driver the most, you know, proficient he could be. And, you know, again, here we are. We have now a road course car that now we're trying to take to the oval tracks. And I think the thing that bothers me the most by it is when you watch the race, like we watched, you know, the race in Michigan. And every time with this low profile tire.
1: I was going to say with the no, tire. With no
0: inner liner, right? It always, it always comes down to the, what's, what meets the road. Mm-hmm. And it has been since we had all these tire changes. And I can tell you, I've been through them. when we were running the, the, the basic, you know, tire that we started with. Right. Which is, you know, and we basically had an inner liner. Right. Um, it was it was a different feel. It had tire stagger. You know, uh, it's just a different element. And then you go to the radial tire and the radial tire changed the face of racing and it changed the way drivers had to drive. And then there have been constant iterations and changes and carcass changes and mold changes. And you name it, they keep trying to change all these things. And it got to a point where you're chasing tires because you could be winning a race, winning win races at the end of the year. And then they come out the next year and there's been a carcass change. And then the tire has changed. The sidewall deflection is different in this thing. And what you just left winning the races with at the end of the year, all of a sudden you're out to lunch because of this change and then you have to readdress, reengineer and come up with combinations that were going to be more profic- more you know more suitable for this for new the tire. tire right for the tire <laughs> so it always comes down to what you know the rubber that meets the road right and so you know that's when well, you can
1: see when they crash they can't even drive to pit road anymore that the, their day is being uh, and actually the 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 positioning and the cautions that are coming out because of tire wear and degradation is really ridiculous because at the end of the day the winners and where everyone's stacking up and who was out it was really a it was an complete result of how did your how did your tires
0: well well, that's always been racing i think tire degradation you know that's something that i think you know that's what makes and breaks a race you know and you if you manage your tires better or your setups better then you know the tire deg that's what you know, the comers and the goers in racing. And that's what makes racing good. But when a car gets a flat tire and you can't drive it into the garage area or into the pit so you well, can change and, it. Yeah, and, and the car's so low the to the car, ground and, and the car it high fine. centers and it won't go anywhere. The car's fine, except this this right. tire's
1: flat. That's the thing.
0: That's in my in that's bad perception. Because first of all, that just tells me that you have allowed this car what you've done what you've made and what you way you design it and the way these guys are running it to get the maximum out of the car you now compromise the race or the end of the race or a time period during the race that guys could still race, but they gotta be, they gotta be, you know, towed in, you know, and it just, and the car sits there because it just won't, I mean, on a flat tire, it won't even move. I mean, that's pathetic. And I don't, I don't get it. Right. And so, you know, they've gone so far away from the bias ply tire with an inner liner, which was been the norm for so long to now we have this low profile tire with no inner liner. And it becomes to be the biggest issues that we have in racing. So, and so you would think that, you know, you get the car back off the ground because they have this diffuser, right? And you're talking about a hundred thousands of an inch being the, the, the factor that you have got to manage because the lower you get that, that rear diffuser on the ground and and run that thing in the ground, that's big speed, big downforce, big speed. Explain to
1: the listeners what the diffuser does.
0: Well, the diffuser, The the whole car underneath the next-gen car is flat. It is sealed up. It's a belly pan from front to back. So the splitter all the way back to this diffuser. But when the air is starting to run underneath the car, then it has these veins and these like sections of fins. And it has like, you know, a diffuser that goes, you know, and it's like like a diverging port. I mean, basically it starts narrow at the front and gets wider at the back. So you increase the air and the air speed as it goes underneath the car. And when it does that, it creates downforce. So when you can trap the air and manipulate the air in a manner in which you create the downforce, the car is like a suction or a vacuum to the bottom of the racetrack. So it wants to stay adhered to the racetrack and create downforce, suction. And that's what like Formula One cars and the uh, GTP cars all have, diffusers, vanes, and different things and ways to and take the air. To manipulate the air. And
1: that's how they stick to the track at enormous high speeds
0: yes i mean the, back then i mean when the G, actual gtp cars and you know those types of formula one cars, they could run on the run upside down i mean if you ran them upside down they would run on the roof because of the grip that they have so wow. so it's amazing what the diffuser does and again and it's just
1: air manipulation it's That's just all it air is.
0: manipulation it is it's just the funneling of the air and trying to utilize the air and managing it in a way to keep the car you know uh with downforce And that's why you, you know, you have downforce on top of the car, you know, air going over the car. You have air going underneath the car. In a stock car, we used to have a bumper. We had no front valence. There was no ceiling of the air. You had a secondary air dam, meaning that you had like a piece of aluminum that was bent with a lip on it that hung down. It may have been, you know, three feet wide or a little less than that. And it was underneath the car and fixed underneath there to create some downforce but you still had a regular car bumper. So the car resembled the car on the street with a bumper, but all the air was going underneath the car. So that's what happened. You were running a projectile through the air and you had this big void area. And that's what they called the draft. The cars would suck up <clears throat> because all the air was going you know, around and over the car. Now with all the front valences they have and the splitters that they have right now, there's less air. It's just the air going up over the car for the most part. And then whatever you keep going underneath the air of the car, going underneath it to this from the splitter and then all the way to the back, you would create the downforce, you know, to help with grip. And you, if you look back the older days when we started running this splitter for the first time, these guys were putting these splitters in, in like pizza ovens and, you know, manipulating and bending them. So the cars had curvatures in them and little raises and ups so they could get the air to go underneath them and then bend them up. So the, the you know, the ends were down, the middles were up like a, like a, kind of like a tongue, right? The thing was up mm-hmm. in the middle, bowed up, right. And then down on the ends, manipulating them. So the air was still going underneath the car. You know, but you still have the downforce in the front and you get more pitch attitude with the car. So it really becomes more about utilizing the air on the car, the pitch attitude of the car and, you know, all those things. So, you know, things have just constant, you know, evolved around the air of these cars because, you know, the cars are getting more aerodynamic. You know, they got splitters. They got now they got diffusers. So the whole dynamic has changed. And now, you know, what works. What works on these cars like before when you would make a a wedge change or you'd make a change to the car and attitude or shock adjustments and things, the car would respond a certain way. Now, it seems like from what I understand and have been told, it's almost like you do the opposite of what you used to do. The car reacts differently to the changes that we make and responds differently. So, you know, again, it is a difference in just, you know, what the car is and what you have to do so you have to relearn some things and go through those processes And that were today when they have all this simulation and all of this you know wind tunnel um, this modeling this is what they call cfd modeling so it's like a modeling system that goes through like the big master computers and they pitch it put in all the parameters you know so it really is interesting you know But it's so expensive and it's so convoluted that the engineers, you know, manage all of this information, this data, and they come up with these, you know, these ideas and concepts and and these setups. So it really has changed. And, you know, it's just that's why the big, you know, it's, it's just these big, huge teams, you know, kind of the cream rising to the top. But you're seeing still on some of the places where you can still be competitive and maybe have an opportunity to win are the road courses. And this whole thing with this point system and the, the situation of when you're in, you know, so now you get to, you know, you're trying to do all you can to get points and stages. But if you win, you're automatically in for the championship. So, so
1: explain how this is different from the point system of the past where you could accumulate points being consistent to now you're you win and you're in. Yeah.
0: Before, it was all about consistency is to win the championship on points. So. You know, guys that say, well, you know, they're not they're not trying to win races. Well, they're trying to win races, but they're trying to be consistent and they're trying to put, you know, they're stacking pennies. They're putting numbers on the board to a point where they can get to a point to win the championship. And, you know, the best teams and the best drivers, you know, they were, you know, having and maybe the less amount of problems within the organization. And depending on how much money you had, you could try to, like, you know, minimize The things and the elements that would cause you to fall out of races, right? Well, you, you know, you would change more parts earlier or you would, you know, have fresher motors in, you would do all the things you could do if you had money to minimize an opportunity for a failure. Well, you were
1: having consistent top 10 finishes every week.
0: Yeah. If you could do that and keep yourself in the points, you were in a position to win the championship. And that's what, you know, that's how, what the, that's what the norm was for NASCAR for so many years.
1: And certainly they were winning races in between there as well. It wasn't that Absolutely.
0: Yeah, they you're weren't. still winning races. You're only as good as your last weekend, right? But it rewarded consistency. So, but what they've done is they have now gone to a point where they've changed the system up completely. And again, in the beginning it's getting easier now because you're seeing it more. You understand the stages and the points, but there's there's giving points out For all these stage wins and all these different things and stuff to try to help you boost your points up and your playoff points, if you make it to the playoffs, so that you don't, if you have a problem or you have a miscue, that you don't fall right out if you've got a bunch of stage points built up, right? So there's, you know, opportunities and there's recourse for having, you know, a a problem or failure in the playoffs if you have more of these stage points. So it rewards running up front. And winning stages and trying to get your your points up there, and especially if you win a race, then you're just trying to get as much of a stack of chips all hoarded there. So if you have a problem and you blow up one race or somebody wrecks you, or you still got enough points to point your way into the next round. So it's a it's almost like playing poker, right? You're trying to just absorb, get you know, win win deals and put chips together and have safeguard here, so in case we have a problem in the playoffs.
1: But explain the if you win, you're in, and how that would trump someone whos who hasn't won and has points built up.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically, I, I remember now if it's 15 or 16 spots that they have, right? They, they basically have, this is the limit of people that get to go into the actual championship. So it it starts out with, if you win, you're in. So I don't care if you win Daytona like Stenhouse did. He's automatically in the playoffs. So he's playing with house money all year long, mm-hmm. unless there's more than whatever it is, 16 winners so if you get more people win then it knocks a next guy down so you could eventually if there are enough guys one races then it would come down to how many points you have would be the next guy that would get in so but we haven't seen that yet we i don't think we've ever seen that many winners where you didn't get in on points as well as a win so right now you got a you know you got you know like Bubba Wallace is like 68 points out of, you know, uh, up in the, in the, in the point deal. And then the next guy's down or, you know, three got points and three, uh, McDowell's right there. And Suarez is right there. Six points, three points. So there's a lot of fighting going on for those last three, four spots to make it into the chase. So if you win though, you're in. So just like when, uh, you know, Gisbergen won at Chicago, mm-hmm. well, he's not in the, he's not guaranteed in there to run for the championship because the 91 car doesn't have enough points. You have to be in the top 30 in points to be able to even utilize a win, right? So you have to be in the top 30 in points to utilize it. So there's only 36 charters and 36 cars showing up. So basically if you're relatively proficient and in running well in the points, then you have a chance to be in, but he is not eligible, right? So, but right now, if you win on a road course, If you come in and you're a slinging guy and Mm -hmm. you can win on a road course, you put yourself in a position to go for the championship.
1: Well, and and what it does is it completely turns the tide of the team owners instead of them wanting consistency. They're going to go out there and take their really proficient, maybe oval course driver out of the car, get themselves a road course ringer, put it in their car because they know they can win in their end. So if you're a mediocre race team, the team ownership definitely wants to win a race.
0: Well. Again, a lot of that back in the older days, when you had these major brands, these Fortune five hundred companies, they didn't want to take their driver out of the car and put a road racing guy right. in there. Right. So you had to get you had to get better as a race car driver to do those things back then because you represented a brand and they didn't want to put somebody a guy in the car for a weekend to go run a race, you know, because they're driving a consistent message to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And so
1: they have a representative for their brand.
0: That is correct. So you know, but there were teams below that used to like pull their driver out and put a road course ringer in there, right? To try to like, you know, elevate the team's notoriety or from a sponsorship perspective, whatever it took, right? And in this day and age, you know, you really, you're not seeing that as much either. the sponsors are not. The sponsors aren't, to the drivers. Really aren't connected. Well, and you have much. so
1: many different sponsors. You could put a different sponsor on the car, you know, every single week. You're even seeing the big teams, you know, dividing sponsors up, you know, for, to five different segments of the year are delegated to a particular sponsor, well, you could have different drivers be that sponsor. It just doesn't seem to be the same loyalty. The sponsors are not demanding. Maybe some are, but I don't see by and large where they're saying, no, we, you cannot have another driver in the car. We want this driver. This is our driver.
0: Yeah. Well, back at like, we started that thing. I think realistically when I was at Bahari, there in like 98, when we had the four Sara Lee uh, meat groups divisions on, who was Sara Lee, Jimmy, Jimmy Dean, Brian foods. uh, We had state for corn dogs. We had uh, the cold cuts. Uh, so we had, we had all kinds of, we had four brands that put all the money together within the organization of Sara Lee to make that up. Right. Because it was about, you know, underwriting some of the costs, right? each division could afford to play. But you
1: still were the But I was, still
0: the, I was still the driver and the spokesperson. And this day and age, you know, again, finding, you know, reputable companies that have major uh, funding that could come in and run the whole year. I mean, these guys are looking for $400,000 a race. That's what they're
1: looking for money
0: wise. Right. $400,000 per race, 36 weekends a year.
1: So what sponsor is going to have that kind of money and spend it there?
0: To get return? Exactly. You know, to have that many people in the stands viewing it, have that much social media content, you know, you have to be able to get return for $400,000 a race. That's huge. That's big money. So racing is expensive this day, and day especially with this new car. It is expensive to do all the engineering and all the things that capable to try to make this car to look for the smaller areas to, to make the, you know, make the gains with, you know, because these cars are all the same, all the same components, all the same pieces. Everybody has the same you know, pieces to play with. It's just how you put them together. The Lego system is a different dynamic and, you know, the, the little, the, you know, there's the smaller areas make bigger differences. So you have to maximize all those things, but, you know, again, it is not a stock car. It is a much different type of race car that we're dealing with now, but the drivers themselves, you know, the, the, we talk about the dynamic changing you know, it is really kind of going back to when we were hiring Boris Sed and Ron Fellows and some of these road racing guys coming in. And I think that the opportunity is certainly there for young drivers that meet the criteria to run the Cup Series that are very proficient. I remember guys like, you know, one of the really, really talented road racers like Bill Oberlin. You know, I've never seen him in a stock car yet this guy wins and everything, you know, the, you know, with the Turner car there, you know, and all the GT series has been a dynamic road racer for many, many years. Right. So the opportunities for those types of guys could be there. But you're seeing, you know, the guys that come in and get an opportunity to drive some of these cars and they're looking elsewhere. And the closest thing to the NASCAR next gen car is the Australian supercar series. So. Guess what? Well, I don't know which way you go from Australia, but I guess you head, you head east, uh, young man, again. It would from be north. Australia. north. It would be north. <laughs> northeast, uh, head uh, from Australia. Head north, baby. We're going to uh, stock car race. So
1: well, t- Yeah, stock car, that's a loose term now.
0: Yeah, but anyways, that's, that is what it is. And now these owners, they're looking to say, we have to look outside.
1: Outside America.
0: Of, a, of what we mm-hmm. are right now to the highest level of, of motor racing here in the United States, being the Cup Series. And I guess I better say to stop saying stock car racing. So <laughs> uh, basically, they're it, looking. It
1: still is NASCAR.
0: It was the Chicago street course race. We had not run a street course in NASCAR, right? I had run a couple street courses with the Winston West Series. You know, we ran streets of Tacoma and the streets of Spokane. They're a different animal. And when they did this in Chicago, and and you got Shane uh, Van Gisbergen.
1: Van Gisbergen, yeah, right. we, said, we said it wrong earlier. Oh, Van Gisbergen, yeah. Van, Van Gisbergen, right. Yes.
0: So they just call him SVG. So SVG. we'll call big SVG. <laughs> SVG, we're on that kind of terms right now, speaking terms. So SVG, this guy comes in, you know, as part of that Project 91 track house, third car, mm-hmm. and they've been bringing in just, you know, some of the big names of auto racing, you know, they brought in, you know, uh, Kimi Raikkonen, right? And then they bring in so they got other guys that come in to drive these cars. All of a sudden they bring in this SPG from the, from basically the same, driving the same kind of car. And he comes in here and he puts on a clinic
1: mm-hmm. in the rain. Yes.
0: Right. And you can watch this guy and just by even visually the optics, even for myself to watch on television. And watch what he was doing with the car. The thing that was most intriguing to me was watching his feet, uh, his footwork. When they had the in-car camera on his footwork, of course he's a heel and toe downshifter, and he's using the clutch. But if you watch this guy, he as he's going in the corner, you can see him pumping the clutch. He's actually using the clutch, engaging and disengaging the car, and the rear tires getting in the corner and doing things with the clutch manipulation. I mean, intriguing stuff. But this guy. His brake modulation was far above anybody else's. And his ability in the car, I mean, he, he understood the car. The car suited him because pretty much what he was been has been driving, even at a higher level of probably downforce in the Australian supercar series. But he was able to take this car and physically manipulate it to the higher level than any of the stock car drivers or NASCAR drivers in the series. And I think it was an eye-opening uh, uh, deal for everyone car owners drivers and, and and the fans themselves and i think it was pretty impressive and i think that this guy all of a sudden now is hot property mm-hmm. this guy has been well
1: there are rumors correct
0: oh yeah there's rumors that he is leaving supercar series and uh he is physically going to be coming to run full-time in the cup series so the next Any
1: particular team got his hooks in i don't already? know
0: yet i don't i don't know what that is but i just know that they're already, I mean, they have already got a ride in a truck series uh, car with uh, Nice Motorsports. So they're already in the process. So you got to believe, nice, I don't. I think Nice is a, uh, is a Chevrolet, is it not? I can't mm-hmm. remember now. But anyways, he's already in a position to start getting old track experience because that'll be his shortcoming. But he'll be in a position to win and you're in on the road courses. And the more and more road courses that come up in these places, I mean, the opportunities are more plentiful to make it into the, uh, you know, the series uh, for opportunity to run the championship. I mean, when Marcus Ambrose, who came from the supercar series Mm -hmm. down South, he came in,
1: he was an Australian as well. He was an Australian. Absolutely.
0: Yep. He was from down under. I don't remember exactly where, but, but Marcus Ambrose was probably one of the very first to come in and, and, JTG Doherty racing team. They, they, they brought him and, He had to get and learn the oval tracks to start in the Xfinity series and all that. But he was, uh, you know, a force to be reckoned with on all the road courses and they won. And it was just his shortcoming was the oval tracks. Mm -hmm. So they had to put together, you know, uh, you know, trying to, but they would win races, but they weren't going to get the championship. Well, now this just is coming into their wheelhouse. You win and you're into the championship. So that was just, it's almost like the timing being poor. If this had been a different point system back then, Ambrose would have been the hero. Mm -hmm. right he still was the hero but he did a really good job in the race car both ovals and uh very proficient race car driver and a nice guy to boot so i think that that is what you're seeing now you're seeing a again another you know coming back around full circle to a road racing platform based on proficiency outside of the guys that we have here so if this and there's another guy I mean, I think this weekend, again, this weekend, and I guess this is why we're talking about it, because this coming weekend is the Indy race. It's Mm -hmm. the road course, Indy road course. So here we are. Now, Childress has gotten into the game. And RCR has Brody Kostecki. Brody Kostecki is in the Supercar Series. I think he's won twice over there this year already. So he races against SVG and is very proficient. He's won races, right? This kid actually has some oval track experience at 15 he ran in the URA, uh, UARA uh, late model series. He was at Rockingham. He was in Rock- at Rockingham with that series, late model at 15. And he's ran ARCA. He's I mean, he having like two poles in the ARCA series. He was, he's got some Oval Track experience. So this guy is maybe another guy that could be the next guy that gets to come over here and get a ride. And some of these guys that aren't running that well and haven't really made the, you know, cut the grade here. Those guys are going to be out and they're going to put their money into a road racing guy. And so you're going to see a changing of the guard here, possibly to have yeah. a few more seats taken ready to say, where by is, some of that. Who's,
1: who's getting ousted at RCR then?
0: Yeah, I don't. Well, I mean, that's a third, that's a third car.
1: Third car. Okay. That's a
0: third car. So, you know, if the funding's there, they can run more cars, but it doesn't have a charter.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So there's no, there's no charter there. So mm-hmm. the bottom line is it's interesting just to see. And there's some guys over there. Names, if you guys pay attention now to the Supercar Series, those guys like Jamie Winecup, uh, Chaz Motzer, uh, I think Craig Lowndes. Those are three big names over there that win races and have been, I mean, big-time stable guys in that series for a long period of time. To what SVG has done? Kind of like when I came from the West Coast, and I, no one had ever done it before, and I came here, and everybody followed suit. You know, you had Mike Blitz, you had Greg Bill. You had all these guys, Chad Little, all these guys started coming from the West Coast and coming here to make well, their way. It
1: just takes one to have super success for them to realize that, hey, it can be done. And, and there's a direct correlation, I think, in how these things kind of morph and how NASCAR used to be just the Southeast. And anybody from outside couldn't drive a race car, couldn't drive a stock car like what they did. And then you have this influx of, of Westerners started by you. And now you have this influx of foreigners coming in. Started by SVG. Yep. And and the and the IMSA model. The the changing of being predominantly oval courses with just a few road courses. Now you have a lot of road courses to the point where people are saying our driver has to know how to road course drive. It can't be just, well, you know, we're just kind of throwing away four or five races this year because our our driver is, you know, he's great on super speedways and he's great on on ovals. But he really stinks at, at road courses, but there wasn't enough of them to where you had to make a driver change and you could get through it. Now it's completely flipped. So
0: the one thing, if you look at all of this that's happened, you know, you still have the one dynamic that it's always been there with NASCAR, the heavy car. So if you are running the, you know, in Europe and you're running all these smaller cars, lightweight, you know, open wheel cars, or whatever, then you still have the transition to running a stock car right but if you see what some of these guys have done when they've come in they, and the the guys that are really really good you know they've made the transition and they can make it but there's guys that haven't really made the transition that from open wheel that try to do it with any car that weren't all that great at it you know but there's some outstanding people that have right i mean you you it, it's montoya was a very talented guy right and could win and everything and i think ultimately if, if Kimi reichen took the time he would too You know, where you're at right now is these leather divisions that are flourishing right now, like Trans Am TA2 racing. That's where all these 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 year old kids are flocking to. Because if they've grown up in karting and they've been a world karting champion like Brent Cruz or Connor Zillich, these guys, they are flourishing in the TA2 Mm -hmm. division and they are whipping the butts of a lot of these. Older guys yes, that have been con- been you know champions in the in the series, or at least giving them a run for their money. Yes. I mean, there's still some talented guys there, like Rafa Matos and Thomas Merrill, that run up front. But you know, Brent Cruz, Connor Zillich, they're I mean, they are they are there. They're
1: always vying for the win with them, and and these these old guys are looking back, going, "Good grief!"
0: So the opportunities for these young kids in Trans Am is is there. It's just they're not old enough because of the parameters that NASCAR has to be able to get there until they're 18 years old correct? and go through the influx and you're going to see, the, an, influx gonna see an influx coming up. So this is just a start in my opinion of where this thing is going, but it, what it does, you know, for you out there, our listeners that have kids and they're in karting and they are looking for, you know, you love racing and they love racing. And this is, this is their passion. This is the deal. The opportunity is there. And it's just maybe a longer process because they're going to have to be 18 to get it there. And they may be ready at 14, 15, 16, but they're not going to have that opportunity, but they're going to have to find the money, the revenue and the backing to get them to 18 years old to get that point. Because right now they're looking at the guys that are 23, 25, 29 in supercar Australian racing. So right now, if I was in Australia, and I had a supercar driver over there, I'd be fearful that my guy's leaving and he's defecting and he's finding a passport and he's <laughs> headed to the United States because the opportunities are here in Mooresville, North Carolina. If you are a supercar driver, I think the opportunities are there. And, you know, it's, it's an exciting time. You are a prophet. You man. are, it's it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye, hear ye.
1: <laughs> I'm ringing the bell. Pied Piper from yeah. down under.
0: Like that old, what's that secretary? You know, bing, 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 bing. Guess what? Here it is. Guess what? All you Australians come to the United States. Here you ye. Here, here. So anyways, you know, it is an exciting time in, in motorsports, I think, for NASCAR because of this influx of new names, well, new exciting.
1: people. Exciting is a, you know, a, a loose term. I, well, don't know. I think there's a lot of old NASCAR fans that don't like it at all.
0: That is true. But I'm just saying, if you are a NASCAR fan and you are a Currently. road racing, you know, fan or fiction auto, this is, I think, maybe music to your ears. So with that, we beat this one uh, up. Indy is this weekend. Let's kind of see how uh, Koseki and, uh, you know, SVG do. It could be a race to watch and see if maybe some of our our thoughts, uh, you know, prevail. Or if this is just a one and done at at Chicagoland and uh, it doesn't happen. So with that, we want to thank you uh, for listening. Uh, you can always reach us. We got the hot laps thing still in play here. A lot of exciting things to be coming. Keep an eye on us on DerekCope.gov. RaceTheory.club is how you can reach our website. And uh, coaching, we still do some coaching and, you know, some um, mentoring and that type of thing for young drivers. So if you have interest or there's a need there, then you can reach us there. And we'd love to hear any comments that you have about the day show. And uh, we'll move forward from here.
1: All right. Enjoy your week, everyone.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time on race theory.
1: Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope double zero, and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.